Good morning. Welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Nathan Englander, who burst on the literary scene in 1999 with his story collection for the Relief of Unbearable Urges, a book that earned him the Penn Faulkner Malamute Award, among many others. His first novel, The Ministry of Special Cases, set during Argentina's Dirty War, came out in 2007. But this year is a particularly fruitful one for Englander. His play, The 27th Man, will premiere at the Public Theater in New York this fall, and his original translation of the Haggadah, the prayer book used during the Passover Seder, will come out this spring. Nathan Englander is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his third major project to come to fruition this year, his short story collection, What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank. Welcome to Between the Covers, Nathan Englander. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So the title of your collection explicitly links itself to the title of Raymond Carver's famous collection, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. What, what, what was behind that choice of, of linking your collection and also linking the title story of your collection to that collection? Um, yeah, there's a lot of weight on the title, and, and I knew that going in, that that's in, in a sense the commitment the book makes. I, I mean, the story itself, which is about a game that, I played with my sister that I thought was a game. I mean, it was. In my universe, it's a game my sister made up that was played only in my own home. Now that that story was in the New Yorker and the book is out, it's just amazing to hear how many people have some versions of this deeply pathological game. But we would, you know, we're super American, but we were raised very religious and uh, in a sense raised sort of like children of the Holocaust. We We both have shtetl heads, basically. And we would really think, who would hide us in the event of a second Holocaust. Like, who are the righteous Gentiles that would hide us? And like 20 years ago, just talking about a, a couple we both know, she said, he would hide us and she would turn us in. And it, it just struck me that, what's well, it struck me that she was right. I, you know, it just, it ends up being this deep, you know, personal thought, but you're like, oh, he's the kind of guy who would, who would hide you. And she's the kind of person who would turn us in when he went to work. I don't know. It was just, it just stayed in my head for two decades. And then when I, took a half step back. I just looked at that and said, oh, this game is, it's its downright twisted. It's fully pathological. And I thought, what's behind that? I wanted to explore it. The point is the way stories grow, which is this game, this idea, it sits for honestly two decades and then it starts to turn into story. And then I have a couple and then I make the husband Jewish and then their friends come and you know suddenly someone's got a wig on and the guy turns Hasidic. It's the way story takes shape. But I thought... Of another story that's, I mean, I love, I love fiction and I, short stories are so close to my heart and, you know, it's maybe, I can't think of a, an American story more legendary from the last 30 years or something than what we talk about when we talk about love. But the story, I hadn't read it, the story at this point, it had, I probably hadn't read it in 15 years, it, it had turned to dust, it was gone. It's what fiction does, like the story melts away and, you know, just, just like any other experience and some of it turns into memory and that's the point what i had left from that story was two couples a kid you know sitting around a kitchen table a bottle of gin between them and then this there's the motion of of light changing through the day that's that story is sort of night coming on and you know that's all it was it wasn't remembered it was a memory i just pictured it and i i thought you know, it was ideas of ownership and identity and all kinds of things. And I, I thought about marrying the two stories, like laying my story onto this very legendary, legendary story. And once I did, I went back and read the original and went as far. You know, I thought, if you're going to do this, then do it. So I, you know, the 
my paragraph ends basically the way Carver's does, which is, you know, about ownership. People from there think it, think it gives them the right. And the doctor, you know, gets to talk about love. You know, it gives him the right. I thought about that ownership. And, and, and once I had gone that far, it needed to be the title of the story. And then it needed to be the title of the book because, you know what, it, you know, it's about standing up straight or something. It, it's it's a, when you write, you're making a commitment. But, you know, in, in every case, thinking about this, if I was going to go as far to echo that story, you know, you better make it clear that you know that you have done that. I, I really, I wrestled with this. I, I just did an event in New York with Colin McCann, and and he, it was really sweet because, you know, when people people who are good readers who read you in manuscript, the time to talk to your writer friend about work is in manuscript. You know, what I'm saying you give me your book now, I'm going to say that's like my mother. That's lovely, Mazaltov, beautiful book. That's what a finished book is. Always, you get a big fat Mazaltov. Job well done. In manuscript, if you respect someone, you say, I loved it, but, you know, that doesn't work. Or, you know, but Colm fought me. You know, he had read it. You know, he blurbed the book. So he got it really early on. He was an early supporter. And he'd call me and say, you know, you have my support, but please, I beg you. You know, we really talked about it. And then at this first event, uh, you know, we did an event together. And he had, he'd said to me, like, I get it. You know, he said to the audience, I thought he was going to beat me up you know, in front of the audience, he's like, I fought him on this title. I hated this title. And he said, and now I understand, like seeing it all together, seeing it done, seeing it out. He understood that that, you know, it was about what he was, you know, taking the other side of the argument was, was like, are you really going to touch that title? And the answer is yes. Well, there's a lot that I think the whole collection touches on that is uh, brought out in the in the title story, what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank, and and one of it one of the things is that uneasiness and that tension and the issue of legitimacy between the Orthodox Jewish community and the secular Jewish community between the diaspora and and uh, and Israel, and and I love the touch that you use in that story around having them smoking pot and raising the level of um, what they're willing to to say and the, and uh, the loosening of their lips around those issues. Oh, thank you. And and, I'm, and and that's the other, you make just a point about, you know, before we went on the air, we we're just talking about collections. And, and it's that idea. I really, you know, I never understand this. We were just sort of talking about that strange, I think, like fake, fake conflict or fake chat. There's no, you know, fiction and, you know, short stories and novels are not at war, you know, but this idea where people say, oh, stories. But my point is, I feel like you should get that same experience. You should get the wind knocked out of you that you better exactly that choose a title story carefully that the stories, it better not be you just hunting around under the bed for manuscript pages. Like the stories better be of a piece and have that whole. And yes, you can read them out of orders, but the same way I was thinking of that when Harry met Sally thing where the person, you know, because that makes would make me crazy, reads the last page of the novel at first. And then anyone can do anything they want with the book. But, but that idea that if you read it through, that you should have a complete experience. But to write is to inhabit the gray space. That's at least that's what interests me, which is I want a black and white world. I was raised in a black and white world. And maybe every child is, you know, maybe that's the idea why fables work, you know, there's good and there's evil. And I think I'm just really interested lately, what these stories are about. about, I, I think I can't handle that the world is not a just place. I think I'm obsessive, you know, about ideas of morality and all these, you know, that it obsesses me. But but you really need to be able to explore both sides. And I and I in inhabiting both sides in the story. I'm just interested in, I guess, ideas of ownership. You know, it's because when you, all this stuff, there's so much, you know, I feel like I will get groups like grouped with books, books that, you know, revisit ideas of the Holocaust, but I'm 
revisiting the idea of the idea of the Holocaust. You know what I'm saying? It's it's that idea to me of I, I'm just interested in how people use so many important ideas and memories and historical things as a bludgeon or people take it as their own, you know, say like, how can you write about that? You know, like anyone who would ever say to me, how can you write about these subjects? And, and I want to know, like, how have you been granted ownership of these subjects to deem what I may write? You know, it's this very strange. Th- I mean, it, my point is, I, yes, there's Jews all over the place. There's Holocaust ideas. all That's what I write about. But for me, because it's about universals, it's about what I'm living. You know, you want it outside of time. That's what fiction does. But it's, you know, to me, I, I as soon as I start talking about ownership of the memory of the Holocaust, I start talking about Bible thumping and the Constitution and the forefathers, you know, I look at what's happening in this country and, you know, I just keep saying again, and I don't know what to call it, but the embarrassment of American politics today. And to me, it's about that people, you know, again, running for president saying what the intent is, what the meaning is to me, where I I just don't understand where that confidence comes from, you know, it almost terrifies me more if they believe what they're saying. If people are, if they're being insincere and duplicitous, then I'm actually much calmer. But if people are literally reading, you know, the Constitution and seeing that or thinking about what it means to be part of a society, saying I'm the person to run this country and I think we should, you know, dismantle anything that cares for another or, you know, represents any, you know, kind of civil behavior towards other people or respect for freedom that comes, you know what I'm saying, under, with democracy, you can have freedom of religion with some sort of theocratic feudal something that's being put in, you know, I I just don't understand how someone, you know, these are smart men. So I really, really just hope they're being, I really just hope they're being duplicitous and thinking, you know, maybe I can pay no taxes and just take, I I hope that's what they're thinking in their head. Because if they're really thinking this is a way to, you know, this is a way to steer America, or this is actually a fair way to live or moral or Christian in any way, it's, it's, maddening to me and and the point is that's what i like to i really like to get you know and again a world that that interests me to get into people's heads that's it i have to play both sides so i get to say when you use the holocaust this way in the first story use the memory of it or use it for identity what does that mean on both sides and you know so if i was writing a political story i'd want to be able to really think it through what it means to say you know uh, I don't know what that we should have basically no federal government What that, you know, I'd want to believe it when I was writing it. But I, yeah, I, I guess I always just wonder what's going on in people's heads. And this is how I can see. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Nathan Englander. We're talking about what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. So Nathan, in a conversation you had with Zadie Smith, you talked about wanting to bring morality back into fiction and, and a desire to bring right and wrong back into fiction Yet you're also talking about here about uh, wanting to um, plumb the gray spaces and the ambiguities, and I I wonder about that tension because what I uh, my my favorite story in the collection is Sister Hills, and I I really appreciated your courage in going into the issue of the Israeli occupation and creating something that wasn't a um, political argument and had and resisted a, a, an ability to reduce it to a political argument. It, I think it invites multiple interpretations. And I think that that desire to bring morality into um, into a story must also somehow be tempered, I would want I would guess. Is that true in order to make it dimensional? Yeah, well, the point is, you know, I'm a political person, not an actively political person, meaning I feel fiercely political, but then I don't do anything or try to make change. And you know, I write stories. 
but that idea of you know you know i can i can scream and 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 you know bang a podium but i'm not really doing it but my point is uh my head is very lit with things political but i i really believe that when you're writing a story, your obligation is to the story itself. It's not my views. I mean, I always use Orwell as the example. He gets to write 1984 and Animal Farm. Not just that he gets to write them, but the reason that they work, the reason they function so well and, and stand the test of time and are so deeply prescient and seem always applicable, um, sadly, more and more applicable to, to the times, is because that's how he ticked. You know what I'm saying? It can't be a polemic. It can't be my, me trying to push an idea. That is corrupting. That sours. That poisons the well. Any intent that I would, like Nathan, me, that's talking to you, like now I'm I'm on the radio with you. You're meeting writer guy. This is writer guy me. You know, like, so the point is when I'm, you know, there's me and then there's writer guy me and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. And I think you have to, one has to be really careful. And that, that was the thing that interested me about Sister Hills of, or of the things that drew me to it was I just decided to touch this thing that is, to me, very explosive to really write, again, to write the whole history of the settlement movement and, and uh, the idea of greater Israel into one story, you know, one short story compressed, you know, and, and the ideas I, I literally, it was dizzying during the process. I literally didn't know what I've never so had no idea myself, the writer guy talking to you or just Nathan hanging at those other selves. I've literally never had so little idea what I had or what I was working on because, you know, I knew that to build that story right, I would just, I don't know, it was, it's a, uh, you know, it, it, I was going to say, I don't want to say into the writer, I was going to be like, you kind of have to read it, but that's, you, everyone, you know, read it or don't read it. But the, the point is, uh, it was so I'm always pulling my hair out and going crazy and full of pressure when I'm writing. That's the process. And I enjoy that process. But when I finished the story, I, I just I did not sleep the night after I finished this draft. I literally did not know what I had. I didn't know if it was, you know, yeah, I, I knew it was something so exactly that something so political and something so loaded and something so overwhelming to me, but also that better not seem like my position my position on the you know settlements and the west bank is totally crystal clear but i'm not talking about it in interviews because i i just want it to be really you know just to draw a line that there's the story and that's that's its own thing and and it just what you were sort of saying that story has been i've been on the road all week which is if i if i'm making any sense to you all god bless you for listening i'm so tired but the point is 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 just that it's been functioning like a rorschach test i've never had a story that people read the same story you know it'd be it's just crazy to me that people read this story and and just see what they want to see or or see what they want to see that i'm saying it's been really interesting. And I think that's what really points to its its strength, in my opinion. In case you just tune in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Nathan Englander about his story collection, what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. One of the themes that I think runs through this whole collection is the issue of legitimacy. And I, I wonder if you see it this way as well. I saw the idea of legitimacy go through this whole piece. And I, the idea of like, is your claim to the land legitimate? Are you as much of a Jew if you're a secular Jew? Um, the legitimacy of memory, especially in Camp Sundown when we're talking about elderly campers who are maybe having true or maybe false memories around the Holocaust. 
And then I, I loved you had a touch in the in the story um, how we avenged the Blums, or the the man who's referred to as the anti-Semite may have actually been half Jewish on his father's side. So, and maybe he was angry because he was ostracized by by the Jews because he was illegitimate. Essentially, do you, do you see that as an organizing principle or no, a theme that you come back to and when you write? Uh, you said that so beautifully, which is positing it. I feel like. That all these things, if you're building a world, it, you know, a world better have everything in it in a sense. Like I may be focusing on one thing. I always feel like I never know what it – I'm working on story and I sometimes am even driven. You know, when I – for a, near a decade writing the Argentina novel, I was sure that this book is about, you know – habeas corpus and about governments gone awry and about Argentina. And, you know, as times go by, I'm like, oh, I guess that was a Jerusalem metaphor or that I didn't know till it was maybe like the last line that I put in the book, which is I had never acknowledged that the son loved his father. I did not know this was a book about a father and a son. I spent a decade writing it and now it's so clear to me. So in a sense, I hear you say that that is such a lovely read and a generous read and a smart read. And I feel like it's the kind of thing I would take to the next city and be like, this is about legitimacy. But I don't have to know that. But when you say that to me, that can't doesn't ring. It just doesn't ring as anything but resoundingly true to me. Like that's a great way to state it because I'm haunted by those things. Exactly that where I say, you know, the ability to say like, you know, well, there is something threatening to say, does a country have a right to exist because there's millions and millions of people there, 20% of them Arab as well. You know, like there's a whole bunch of killing you're going to have to do, you know, to undo that. But yes, the question is, do you belong in Gaza? Do you belong surrounding Gaza? Do you belong in Hebron? You know, what does that mean to, you know, you know, how do you deal with lost land? How do you do swap? How do you make, you know, yes, then there are an infinite number of practical questions involved in all these things. But that's, I, I, I get lost I do, or not get, I try to make sense of the gray. I grew up with a black and white world. It's so nice, you know, and I'm not doing that thing. That's why it's always about respect for me. That's the point. I just want respect always to flow in two directions. I, you know, I find it offensive to religious people when people do that quaint thing. It's so nice to have all the answers, you know, like that's a really insulting thing. But my point is, I can say what was nice about black and white is a lot is prescribed. You know, you know where you're going to be on Saturday and you know what time of day you're praying and you know, you know, bust out your Talmud, you know, which leg of your pants to pull on first, you know, you know, which is the dominant art. Well, all these things are decided for you in a way. So I, I feel like the idea of, of finding that there's so much gray space in the world is is just or that the world is not a just place is somehow both overwhelming and terrifying to me and also really moving in, in about the humanity in it. It's yeah, it's it's what at least with this book, it's what I just want to look at exactly that. What is a true memory? What is true ownership? What is true freedom? You know, they're, they're, they're big questions, but it's what I do all day. I'd, I'd, I'd rather work with the big than the small. Well, you definitely have, a, I think, a unique place among American writers who use Jewishness as their material in the sense that you come from an Orthodox background, but you're a secular now, and you've lived both in America and in Israel. Uh, do you ever think about, in a, in a more of a generational sense, for American Jewish writers, whether the concerns for uh, American Jewish writers of this generation, say you and Shabon and Lethem or Marcus versus Roth and Bellow, have changed considerably? Or is that a question you don't even ask yourself? No, I, uh, you're so good. To, this is your, uh, these are so generous in the way, you know, the way I, you're, 
talking in a way that I think. But the point is, yes, that's what I was going to say. As you were asking the question before you started l- l- listing, I wanted to go back to you know that Saturday Night Live skit and be like, you know, Jew, not a Jew. You know, they had that game show that caused a whole kind of ruckus back in the 70s, I guess. But that idea, like, yeah, you know, I'm glad I was hoping you'd throw Lethem in there because he's the perfect example. Like, you know, it, his mother's Jewish. Like, you know, the work itself, you know, is, you know, he, he does so many, he moves through so many genres. I mean, he's up, you know, the last book's criticism. You know, Jonathan writes everything. That idea of, of and so little of it is overtly, you know, Jewish in in any, you know, I re- we'll see when that novel, co- I've read somewhere, I'm like, this is a Jewish novel from, but my point is, that's the idea. What does it even mean to be these things? Or, you know, Ben Marcus is a good example, like where you just listed him, like, that's a new Ben Marcus. You know what I'm saying? He, he, like, a narrative Ben Marcus is, in, you know, like in the way he was dealing so much more with language and idea and whatever. I'm no critic. But my point is, that's the idea. Even one writer, you've got two writers if you take the way he's working now and the way he used to work. Or, and Shabin Michael's a great example, too, where Michael, it's like Michael's getting more and more in touch, you know, or what in touch sounds. I don't even know what that means. But my point is, you know, interested in these things. You know, Mystery of Pittsburgh is, you know, does not seem a Jewish novel to me. You know, so that's the idea. It's about, it's just about where your head's at and what you're writing. My point is it's so not other. I don't group my shelves that way. I was doing a lot of interviews in New York before I left and I looked at my shelf and I said, oh, it's, you know, you know, Black Boy is next to Magic Barrel, is is next to, you know, a Peter Carey, is next to a Chris Adrian, is next to Gogol's The Note. You know, those are, that's how my categories are. They would take nine hours to explain why that don't touch that shelf. That shelf is carefully curated and it means something to me. But, I, you know, for me, I guess I, I answer that Jewish question endlessly, which is fair to ask. There's a lot of Jews running around the book. It's just, you know, it is thick with Jews. But but the point is, you know, I, I feel like that's why I never get through an interview without screaming, my parents were born here, my grandparents to my great grandparents. It's my great, great, you know what I'm saying? My People came in the 19th century. You know, I've been here a long time. And that idea that it's some qualified form of fiction or some qualified form of American, you know, that I don't get to sit here and say, you know, the American, right? Like, you know, I write short stories like, again, I'm not listing people because then it would be giving myself a compliment or an insult or whatever by who I list. But my point is, you know, you just don't get grouped that way. I, I don't think anyone says, you know, so, you know, how did being a Christian in America inform the writing of Blade Runner? You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's it's futuristic. So I grew up only with Jews. That was my whole universe. Then I went to a school that's all Jews. Then I went to Israel, that's plenty of Jews. Then I moved back to New York, which is lots of Jews. You know, that idea that it's somehow other or genre fiction, or I really think the whole idea, you know, for me, I say the question about Jewish writing to me is just, I, I finally figured out the answer after 15 years of being asked it, which is, you know, I really see it this way now, really calmly, the question being asked of me, is how has living in the world sparked your imagination? That's how I've decided to hear it. That's just what's being asked. But the idea of generational stuff, I think it's, you can take any grouping of writers and do generational stuff. Like where does, you know, where does, you know, that sort of Bartholomew, like 60 stories, like where does that come from? Like that's of a man, but it's also of a time, you know. I, I mean, I think they're timeless. I still love those stories. But that kind of working with language, I think is of a time where I did not, live and I and I get it. So yeah, I, I see the generational shift, but I mean, it's, that's just the grouping. There's, you know, Roth, Malamud, Bella, you know, and it's, I, I'm glad to be included with fine writers whenever I'm included with fine writers. That's, that's a great thing. But yeah, I feel like it's more just a reflection 
it, it, I, I just feel like it, much like writing is a way of making order out of the world, I think as a reader, I do it to others. I just do it differently, you know, not so much by style or or ethnicity or whatever. But yeah, I think it's just a way to make order of the world. The one thing I could say on that fret about generations, I've often felt, you know, I love the, I know I love Roth and I love Mallory, but in terms of experience, I think, I think of them, they were becoming American and a lot of the writing for them was about that. The comfort that I feel now to say, I'm, you know, how dare anyone question how totally American I am was because these guys were going to public school and, you know, and chasing monkey around in Portnoy's complain and, and, you know, knocking, you know, the natural, you know, these ideas, they were becoming American. I feel really connected to Singer in a sense. To me, I feel like that was the idea. He grew up, you know, in, like the book is called In His Father's Court, but that that excitement that he felt to be out in a world that felt broader to him, you know, again, with great respect, it can be a very broad world if that's a world for you. That's what I never lose that feeling of excitement of being out in the world. And it's a, it's, it's, yeah, I feel of a different generation when I think about the way I look out my eyeballs. I'd love to end the interview and talk just briefly about the new American Haggadah and, and your oh, trans- sure. translation of it. Um, in listening to your interview on NPR on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, she seemed perplexed that you, someone who's chosen to be uh, explicitly secular, would choose to uh, uh, in, translate a prayer book for the Passover Seder. I, I didn't find it as perplexing as her, and I, I was curious. To me, it made a lot of sense that that you would choose that of all holidays because it seems to me like the one Jewish holiday that maybe— uh, you could find the most religious and the most secular people could find a place of of uh, fondness for. Maybe it's because it's not mediated by a rabbi and because you can find social justice issues in it as well as, if you want, find religious uh, divine intervention in it. Um, but it seems to mean a lot of things for a lot of people. And uh, and, and and like Sister Hills, your, your story of the Israeli occupation, it resists uh, uh, a simplification to one idea. And did, did that is that part of the appeal of what brought you to the Haggadah versus? Uh... Oh uh, no! Uh, credit where credit is due is you know I'm the translator, and and spent the last three years just involved in you know in in I, I consider I thought it was going to be a fun you know a hipster Haggadah as I was calling it that it that it would be a light project and then it just became all consuming to do just you know the idea of doing justice to this text but it was you know six it's six years ago it's three years, Jonathan Safran Foer it was a crazy idea of his you know and I feel like that's even that idea the way leaving orthodoxy I feel like the conservative kids are better at I don't know somehow you know the traditional homes they I feel like it, when you don't pull things to extremes there's a you know he's not I I don't he's not a religious man at all I think it's bad to say but he's a traditional in in some ways or but but the idea yeah he he was really it, he's the one who talked me into this project and I was wildly resistant and it's been it's been very confusing to me to be so and wonderful actually it's really informed everything else to be so deeply involved in text again but I guess yes of Jewish holidays I have to say it's the only one I do I mean if I can be around with my family for others I'll go but the only one on my own, like the last years where I've gone to a friend's for Seder or something where I didn't get, you know, down to where my family was. Yeah, it, it's, you know, uh, like almost like the Thanksgiving of Jewish holidays. My favorite secular holiday in America is Thanksgiving. I feel like, and again, yes, there's a problem with even that holiday. And then, Christ, you know, it's like Columbus Day, and but the Native American, I know it's a problematic holiday, but 
but, but for it does me, involve symbolic foods. And well, that's what I'm saying. If we friends. remove, you can, this is my point of playing both sides. I can take apart Thanksgiving too, but yes, it's for every religion is welcome and you can sit down at the table with family. And, you know, it's one of those times where as a deeply religious Jewish family, I felt, oh, this is, I, this is a very American day for us. You put on the game and you eat your food and, you know, so, but I feel like that's that same way where, as you just said, where whether you're super religious or, you know, radically secular, that there, that Passover is the most living and malleable and there's just a lot of room in there for for finding your way in it so yeah sort of exactly like that on thanksgiving you know you want pumpkin pie we do lemon meringue in my house and you it's still it still counts as thanksgiving with lemon meringue are you working on anything new i am i'm i'm just i again a decade with the novel and i just could not dress myself and write in the same day it was that's what that book demanded i am so loving being overwhelmed and not sleeping. I mean, you know, I worked, you know, super hard on that. I'm not talking about working harder. I just mean making commitments to actual other people and working with uh, the, the collaborations really excited me. I, I worked with this guy, Baruch Thaler, uh, as a study partner during the Haggadah, who was, a, you know, who was a genius and, you know, working with him and then bringing it to Jonathan as editor and going over the text, like, and the play working with Nora Ephron and then, then Oscar Eustace and Barry Edelstein at the public, like the idea of working with people has been so exciting. So yes, I've got a novel going. I know the next stories I want to write. There's about 20 different plays, one, even a musical that I'd love to dig into. I am just, I've been, I've been doing I've been making pottery all, throwing pottery all fall. I just want to do, I am liking making things and the more people involved and the more projects, the better. So if you have something on the radio you want to make with me, I will hang out here after and do it. That sounds great. It was a pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Nathan. Thank you for such a close read, honestly. So we were talking today with Nathan Englander, the author of What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank. This is Between the Covers and I'm David Naiman, your host.